Well, good morning, Mission Cincinnati, and again, happy Easter to you on this strangest of Easter Sundays. This is indeed very unusual uh, to be preaching in some ways to a camera on a morning when we are supposed to be embodying the most amazing celebration in the history of the world. So it feels a bit different. And I think maybe with that, perhaps is the reason why, as I was praying into Easter and looking at the lectionary passages that were assigned to us, my heart was drawn to what I would say would be a non-traditional text. You know, typically we would preach from the gospel readings on Easter morning and dive right into the firsthand accounts of the witnesses experiencing Jesus' resurrection for the first time. But as I was reflecting on the passages that were given to us this week, my heart was really drawn to the one that Charles just read from Acts chapter 10. And so this morning, I am excited about what God might have to say to us, and more than what he has to say, what he wants to do in our hearts as we encounter the living, raised from the dead Jesus in this passage of scripture. Would you pray with me before we dive in together? Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would come and that you would do what we are powerless to do apart from your help, that you would open your word to us, that we might see Jesus on the pages of the scriptures and not only see Jesus, but we would encounter him afresh in our lives, Lord. God, in every place where we need you this morning, whether we need you to touch our lives for the first time or whether we need for you to encounter us afresh, For the hundred, thousandth, millionth time, come, Lord Jesus, with the power of your spirit and breathe the fullness of resurrection life into our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Acts passage that Charles just read is actually the end of a chapter-long story about what God has been doing in the lives of two people, the Apostle Peter and a man named Cornelius. Cornelius, who we meet at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, was a soldier in the Roman army. He was a Gentile, a.k.a. not Jewish, and a.k.a. not historically a part of the family of God. But Cornelius wanted to know God. The passage tells us that Cornelius and his family were devout and God-fearing. They gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. God-fearers, in the time our passage was written, were non-Jewish Gentiles who hung out around Jewish synagogues trying to learn about the ways of God. The most devout God-fearers would actually seek to become Jewish, to be baptized into the Jewish ethnicity, and if you were a man, circumcised as a sign of your new belonging into the family of God. In other words, before Jesus, the only way that you could know and come close to the God of Israel was to actually become Jewish. And that would have taken a lot of work. As I've checked in with friends and family and people in our church and others across the country, my sense is that the coronavirus has caused a lot of us to scramble. I know business leaders who have had to reinvent their whole company strategy overnight. Single mothers who are trying to figure out how to keep their kids fed and clothed without a job or child care. People who are stuck home alone in medical quarantine with undiagnosed symptoms. All of us are afraid and uncertain. And we respond to this the only way that we know how. By working really hard at everything all the time. 
On top of this, trying to make spiritual sense out of what's going on right now isn't easy. Most of us don't know how to look for God's presence or movement in a pandemic lockdown world. Mentally trying to figure that out, to make space to reflect, feels impossible on top of everything else that we have to get done. And so if finding God in these days takes as much work as it would have taken for Cornelius and his family to become Jewish, then perhaps faith in the time of the coronavirus is a non-essential service. But what gets the spotlight in this passage isn't the work that Cornelius and his family put into finding God. It's the grace that God demonstrates as he reveals himself to Cornelius, regardless of what Cornelius did or did not do. Acts 10, 3-5 tells us that randomly one day, and somehow specifically at 3 p.m., God suddenly and dramatically interrupted and upended Cornelius' life by appearing to him in a vision. Cornelius, the passage tells us, distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, as angels do, I guess, when they come to you, they say your name. I don't know. Have you seen an angel? What did it look like? How did Cornelius know this? We don't know. But Cornelius distinctly knew that this was an angel of God, something of God, something from out there beyond what we know or understand ourselves was coming to encounter his life and change everything. And so when the angel said his name, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? As one might ask, presumably, to an angel who encounters us in the middle of the afternoon. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. It's easy to read these verses and think, awesome. I mean, visions, angels, clear and personal directions from God. Sounds like an old religious book that has nothing whatsoever to do with my current life experience. I mean, we all know that God doesn't do that sort of thing anymore, right? I wouldn't be so sure. In high school, I had a friend named Hammond who wanted nothing to do with God. Upon graduation, he threw himself into the college party life his first semester of freshman year. He was gearing up for fraternity rush when one night he had a dream that he was being buried alive. No matter what he did, he couldn't climb his way out of the pit that he was falling into deeper and deeper. Until all of a sudden, a man in shining white clothes appeared and pulled him out of the pit. He woke up with a sudden knowledge that he needed to go talk to the RUF campus minister. And so he somehow found this guy's phone number, a ministry he'd never talked to before, called him up in the middle of the night and said, I need to speak to you right now. The minister came to campus and sat down with my friend and listened as Hammond shared the story of his dream and then said, God told me to ask you, who is the man in white? Finding God is not about our effort. Finding God is about God's grace, his enthusiastic willingness to reveal himself to us, to show up right in places in our lives where we're burned out, depressed, exhausted, aren't believing in God or thinking that he's boring, irrelevant, or even dead. That's what God did in Cornelius' life. That's what God did in the lives of Jesus' friends and followers that first Easter morning. 
And that's what God still does today. And what I believe he wants to do in each and every one of our lives this morning. The God once crucified and now raised from the dead in Jesus wants to reveal himself to you. Not as a reward for your hard work, but as a gift of his grace. After his vision, Cornelius sends people to find the man the angel told him about, Simon Peter. Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. He was one of the three disciples closest to Christ. And Jesus once described Peter as the rock upon which I will build my church. But Peter was also the one who betrayed Jesus by denying that he had ever known Jesus three times on the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. Imagine being on trial for a crime that you didn't commit. A life sentence hangs in the balance, and your best friend or your spouse comes in to testify. They can get you off the hook because they know you and your character intimately, and they were with you when all of the things that you were accused of happened that you never did. Instead, they look the judge straight in the eye and deny ever having known you. That was Peter. And on the first Easter morning, when Jesus rose from the dead and the women ran from the tomb with good news that the formerly dead Jesus was now alive, Peter went back to fishing, his old job, as if nothing had changed. And yet, just like he did for Cornelius, Jesus appeared to Peter on the beach and made him breakfast. And over a campfire and some cooked fish, Jesus forgave Peter and gave him a mission for the rest of his life. Feed my sheep. Several weeks later, the Holy Spirit fell on Peter at Pentecost. And he stood up and preached a sermon that brought 3,000 people to Christ in one moment. And now, several chapters after that moment, Jesus reveals himself to Peter again in a vision with a sheet coming down from heaven filled up with all kinds of animals that Jews couldn't eat because God's laws given to them in the Old Testament had said that these animals were unclean. These laws came from the same religious legal tradition that encouraged Jews like Peter to stay away from Gentiles like Cornelius. But in this vision, with all of the unclean animals, God himself speaks to Peter and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter is shocked by this, maybe even offended, and protests as if God doesn't know what the heck God's talking about. So God gives Peter the same vision two more times with the instruction, Don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. Then the sheet vanishes, and Peter realizes that he has guests, the people Cornelius has sent to find him. Peter asks these Gentile men why they've come to seek him, a Jewish Christian. They respond by telling Peter about their master Cornelius' other vision. In hearing this, Peter realizes the purpose of God's vision that he gave to him. Peter, a Jew, is being sent by God to take the gospel into new territory, to preach the resurrection of Jesus, not just to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. Because, as Peter recognizes later in verses 35 and 36, God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation 
the one who fears him and does what is right. It strikes me that in all of this story, God never gives up on Peter. Through all of Peter's mistakes, betrayal, and hard-headedness, God keeps pursuing him. He keeps showing up in Peter's life, keeps revealing himself to Peter, and keeps calling Peter to join in on what he's doing in the world and in other people's lives. And just as God never gives up on Peter, God never gives up on us. In one of my favorite movies, Slumdog Millionaire, main character Jamal is in love with his childhood friend, Latika. But over and over again, Latika scorns Jamal's love. And meanwhile, Latika's rejection keeps leading her into more and more dangerous and abusive situations to the point where her captor punishes her by cutting her face with a knife in such a way that scars her forever. Finally, at the end of the movie, after pursuit after pursuit, Latika finally goes to Jamal. But as she comes close, Latika is ashamed of her scarred face and turns away from Jamal. But Jamal embraces her, turns her face to look fully into his, and kisses her, not on the lips, but on the scar demonstrating his love for her, especially in the place of her deepest brokenness. All of us, friends, are Peter. All of us are Latika. And the glorious news of the gospel is that God doesn't give up on Peter's and Latika's. And he doesn't give up on you or me either. He keeps pursuing us. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ proves. That in Jesus, God would go to the death to rescue us. He'd bear deadly pain in his own body to remove the sin that would keep us from him. To win a victory over death and hell so that by grace and through faith, the end of our lives' stories wouldn't be death anymore, but would instead be life forever with God, free from disease or pain. Whatever you've done, Wherever you are this morning, because of Easter, there is room in the story of God for you. Because the God revealed in Jesus never gives up on you. Peter departs and soon shows up at Cornelius' house. Jews like Peter weren't supposed to enter the home of Gentiles like Cornelius. But this was what God's sheet and animals vision was all about. God was up to something new through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The hope of salvation, the ability to join the family of God was no longer just for the Jews. In Christ, God's love and salvation were going global, extending good news to all people, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so Peter steps with Jesus across the threshold into Cornelius' home. And as he does so, he also steps with Jesus across the line, separating what was old from what has been made new. The line separating what has been buried in the grave from what has been raised up with new life. Inside, Peter finds a large crowd of Cornelius' relatives and friends, and all of them are waiting to hear what Peter will tell them about how they can know God. 
Peter reminds them first of what they already know. You guys have heard about Jesus. You know the Jews were told that God would make peace on earth through Jesus. You know that Jesus went from town to town healing people and casting out demons because God's anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit was on him. And I'm here to tell you that all of that is true. Not because I've heard about it, but because I saw it with my own eyes. I walked with Jesus through all of that. And I was there when my countrymen nailed Jesus to a cross and killed him. I was there with my friends three days later when God raised him from the dead. None of us expected it. And most of us at first didn't believe it. But Jesus appeared to us and convinced us that he was really alive. We ate dinner and drank wine with a former dead guy whose stomach could now digest food again. The world has never seen anything like this. And as we sat with Jesus, he gave us a mission. Tell people what you've seen me do. Tell them what you've heard me teach. Tell everyone that I am Lord, that I will sift out what's really worthy of praise or shame in people's lives. Not the government, not your friends you're trying to please, not the business down the street you're competing with, not your bank balance. I alone am Lord. And you don't have to live to please anyone anymore except for me. Share this good news with people. That anyone who believes that I am Lord, that I died and rose again, that I'm God in the flesh and that I'm coming back at the end of time to fully establish the kingdom that even now I'm beginning as a subversive movement in the world. Anyone who believes all of that will receive forgiveness from sins in my name. As Peter finishes speaking, he watches in amazement as the same Holy Spirit who once fell on him with power at Pentecost now falls on the Gentiles gathered in Cornelius' home, giving them power and gifts through the Spirit too. In that moment, Peter realizes that they have indeed believed in Jesus, that their sins have indeed been forgiven, that the Holy Spirit has indeed been poured out on them too as a down payment of the full spiritual inheritance that is now theirs in Christ as members of the family of God as well. It's next to impossible to live in America today and not have heard about Jesus. All of us know about Jesus. Stanley Haworos calls America Christ-haunted. An artist, Ben Folds, once wrote a song called Jesus Land, in which he says of America, town to town, broadcast to each house, they drop your name, but no one knows your face. Billboards quoting things you'd never say. You hang your head and pray for Jesus land, Jesus land. Yes, Stanley and Ben, we've heard of Jesus, but the crucial question of Easter is do we know Jesus? Have you, like Peter, personally witnessed Jesus' activity in the world and in your life? Have you seen Jesus heal? Have you seen him defeat evil? Have you experienced the power of the resurrection freeing you from shame, giving you grace and courage to grow out of sinful habits, fueling your imagination to persevere with hope even in the midst of despair? 
Easter is not about Hallmark cards and bunnies and eggs and a Sunday where we dress up in nice clothes and play church for some sort of religious experience that we forget about 24 hours later. Easter is about a decision to believe something life-changing. It is about hearing the most crucial message in history and deciding whether you think it's worth staking your whole life on or whether you think it's all just BS. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, he's left us with no other option. And if Jesus is who he says he is, why would we want anything for our life other than wholehearted belief and pursuit of him that activates us as servants and healers that he sent to help a hurting world? The God who loved us enough to endure the cross, to welcome us into his family, eternal life and citizenship in his kingdom, so that we could have his power in us to heal the world like he did. This morning, I wonder, can you feel the love of God reaching out to you from the empty tomb through the raised from the dead Jesus, wooing you to say yes to belief in him, So that just like Cornelius' family in that room 2,000 years ago, you too can receive forgiveness of sins in his name and be commissioned to share the good news of the kingdom of God that is coming to Christ, coming in Christ to all people. Let this Easter be your day of first faith. Well, not only does something happen in the lives of Cornelius' household in our passage, something happens in Peter, too. Peter's faith is refreshed. I have to wonder if watching these Gentiles come to faith for the first time brought Peter back to his own experiences of the first Easter morning. That first Easter with Jesus, hearing about Jesus' resurrection for the first time, sharing breakfast with the newly raised from the dead Jesus on the beach, waiting desperately for God to show up in the upper room before Pentecost, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, giving him courage to stand and preach the gospel to gathered crowds. It's hard to sustain the joy of fresh faith, isn't it? I've been a Christian for more than 20 years, and I am regularly moved to tears as I think about how I used to be so much more passionately in love with Jesus as a 21-year-old than I am now. Maybe you know what that's like, to feel the zeal you felt when God first wrapped you up in a big, emotionally charged, heavenly hug slowly fade in the midst of busyness, stress, disappointment, and loss. Maybe you still believe, but it's kind of like Christmas ornaments. Like you know that you own them and they're in a box somewhere in your basement, but if I asked you right now, you couldn't really tell me exactly where that box is. If that's you this morning, if your experience of faith has grown cold, hear the Easter invitation of Jesus to you. An invitation not just to first faith, but to fresh faith. To remember again God's power in Christ to change lives. To put broken stuff back together again. To heal wounds. To cure disease. 
to forgive sin and to raise up dead people back to life every single day. To remember that in Christ, the same power that once raised Jesus from the dead is now alive in you and flows through your veins in Christ. To restore life, not just to your heart, but through you to a world that is desperate to experience life. Bring your whole heart to Jesus this morning. As dead and dry as you may think it is. Place your life in his nail-pierced but fully alive hands and watch as he raises what's dead in you to new life in him as well. Mission Cincinnati, Jesus reveals himself to people. Jesus never gives up on people. Jesus' resurrection kindles first faith and it restores fresh faith. Wherever you are this morning, invite the resurrected Jesus to show up in your life. Whatever invitation he extends to you, from believing in him for the first time to following him in a new season of faith-filled adventure, say yes to that invitation because that is what Easter is truly about. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.